0: because there truly is hope, in spite of what depression tells you. Hi, Terry. Hello again, Anita. So, I was watching a TV show the other day, and this young person was asking someone who'd been married for a long time for the secrets to a lasting relationship. And the long-married person replied that he should really talk to someone who's divorced, too, because their perspective would provide valuable information that they didn't know and couldn't share. And I thought about the interviews we do each week. Hundreds of guests have shared their stories and coping strategies here, reminding us of the many tools available to manage our mental health and stay as far away from the edge as possible.
1: Right, Terry. So in September, we focused on suicide awareness and prevention and brought you the stories of people who can share perspectives that those who have avoided the edge can't possibly know. In episode 218, we heard from Wally, who lives with regular suicidal ideation. In episode 219, Sergeant Kevin Briggs shared about the hundreds of people he supported, who were within literal inches of ending their lives. And in episodes 220 and 221, we heard from Ken, a suicide attempt survivor who shared the powerful message that even when you're convinced that your life will never, ever change and improve, there really is hope. Ken disclosed that he instantly regretted his attempt, suddenly understanding in the midst of it that the problems he believed were unsolvable actually were not. His story is both powerful and important.
0: Just that line is that he thought we're unsolvable, actually we're not. So before we get into today's interview, we want to share a number of recent social media posts that reinforce that message that Ken made and that this week's guest, Chloe, will so that you can hear and recognize those truths as more common than you might imagine. MJM recently wrote, today's my birthday. As someone who's been suicidal, this day is a constant reminder of how far I've come from once facing the end, a cake to celebrate, a candle lit to remember the souls we've lost. And my wish is for all those suffering to survive.
1: And Victor writes, if an inner voice tells you that you are not good enough and that you're unworthy of love, if it tells you that life itself is your enemy and suicide is the only option, please know that depression will lie to you in your own voice. You matter. You matter. And you are enough.
0: And some recent writings from today's guest, Chloe, who just celebrated an anniversary. She writes: Six years ago, I was laid in a hospital bed after a suicide attempt that nearly cost me my life. This afternoon, I'm with my one-year-old nephew, feeling thankful to be alive. The pain you're feeling is not forever, I promise, but you have to stick around to find
1: out. In another post, posing with a big silver balloon in the shape of a six. It's the picture we're posting with this episode. She writes in all caps, six years suicide attempt free, six years of being alive, six years of kicking depression's butt. I've been alive six more years than I thought I ever would. And life is so incredibly beautiful. If you're in a dark place, those hopeful comments may sound fantastical, like glittery propaganda manufactured for a month dedicated to suicide prevention. But they're not. These are real comments from people just like you and me who know the depths of depression's darkness and who are speaking publicly to remind us all that there are ways out, that suicidal crises do not last forever, and that while there is likely work involved, there is a better life ahead of you. Chloe is living proof of that. Here she is now, giving her voice to depression.
0: Chloe begins the story of her mental health journey in her pre-teens.
2: I think I remember struggling since the age of 11 years old. Um, I remember having... Thoughts of suicide, thoughts of harming myself, Um, I had low mood all the time and I kind of thought that everyone my age was feeling the same way that I was. Um, I thought that everyone was having the same thoughts, the same feelings.
0: And because she didn't know and certainly wasn't taught or modeled better, she just thought that was normal.
2: So I never really spoke about it. Um, because I guess it was such a taboo, taboo subject um, for me growing up you know my family and I never really spoke about our emotions our feelings and I kind of spent all my time through high school just bottling up my emotions my feelings in some ways I kind of feel like I was masking like the pain through just being so outgoing so kind of a jokester almost um, and I Again, I never spoke to anyone about the way I was feeling.
0: Chloe was not only outgoing and funny, she was also popular and a gifted athlete. From that young age, her dream was to earn a scholarship, leave the UK and move to the United States to play soccer on scholarship. That plan created a lot of pressure on her. She vividly remembers her body's reaction to playing poorly in a game when she was just 16.
2: And I remember running to the locker rooms and punching a wall and just not being able to breathe. And I think that was the first time I'd ever had a panic attack before. And for me, I feel like it was all these bottled up emotions from the past five years had kind of come exploding out. And now all of a sudden, everyone around me kind of knew my reality because they'd seen me in that place. (laughs) And I think that day was kind of a downward spiral for me.
0: It was also the day a pivotal player in Chloe's recovery would emerge.
2: My PE teacher, my sport teacher at the time, kind of stepped in and said that he was going to be there for me.
0: Remember that as you hear more of Chloe's story, because it gets a lot worse before it gets better. But it does get much better, and that teacher continues to play a role. So four months pass after her panic attack, and Chloe's downward spiral brings her to a place she'd never been.
2: Yeah, I remember feeling like there was literally no point in carrying on anymore and being alive when I was so unhappy. Like, my, I remember literally thinking to myself, looking in the mirror, and, like, not being able to recognize who I was. And I just said, like, what's the point in living when I'm not even enjoying being alive? I just wanted the pain to end, and I think... I think that was the only thought that was going through my head. I mean, I wasn't thinking about my family, my friends. I was kind of just in this, in this mindset that, that I just want the pain to end.
0: And did you believe that it would not ever end?
2: Yeah, I believed that it would never end. I believed that I was going to be in this emotional pain for the rest of my life. And it, and it genuinely did feel that way. Um, when I like think of that time, literally... I remember seeing the world in complete grayscale, like it was all black and white to me. And I never saw colour in anything, like the sky, the grass, like everything was just grey. And I was just so miserable. And yeah, I never, ever thought that it was going to be colourful again.
0: With those beliefs, which she now knows were false, Chloe attempted suicide. She remembers her best friend running to help her then paramedics, and an ambulance ride. She remembers unhelpful reactions at the hospital.
2: And I remember the nurse, and she'd obviously realized that, you know, I tried taking my own life. And I remember she shook her head at me, and she said, like, why would you do that to yourself? And why would you do it to your family? And then I remember my mum coming into the hospital, and she just broke down into tears. And again, she was like, how could you do this to me? And I think like that reaction in itself, like spoke volumes to me because it just shows how little understanding at that time there was of mental illness and suicide. And all I really needed to hear was that it was going to be okay. My mum came the next day and she, she hugged me again. She cried. And that time round, she said that she was going to help me through it. And again, I think that's all I really needed to hear.
0: So, before we transition, I guess, into the next part of your journey and your story, right here, if somebody's listening, I fear them thinking, yeah, that's how I feel. I'm going to do it too or something, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Can
0: you give us a a little reality check now that you are on the other side and you have a different perspective?
2: Yeah. Um, I see the world in color again now and I see it brighter than I ever did before. I I love being alive and I I appreciate every single small thing and all the good things in my day-to-day life and things that maybe I wouldn't have appreciated before I struggled. And even though it feels like it's never going to end the darkest day always comes to an end, like the storm always comes to an end, and the sun will always come out again. And it doesn't necessarily come out straight away. And sometimes it takes weeks or months, but it always comes out again. And I think that's the hope that you have to remember when you feel like there's just no point and everything feels so dark and so gray and so gloomy. So
0: between those two realities, what happened to shift from one to the other?
2: um I I'd come out of hospital and again I was still feeling like I didn't want to be alive and then it got to a point at Christmas time of 2016 and I decided that you know I was going to try and take my life again and my sport teacher that I previously mentioned he had noticed a change in my behavior and he stepped in and he pulled me into a classroom and he said to me I know exactly what you've got planned and I'm not going to let you do it. I'm not going to let you try and take your life. You've got so much to live for. You've got so much to give to this world, and I'm not going to let you do it. And I think that one conversation saved my life, genuinely, um, because I didn't go through with it.
0: That same high school teacher noticed that Chloe just was not herself, and he stepped in. One single, caring human, initiating One brave conversation. And in that, he not only changed her plans, but the trajectory of her
2: life. He had just realized that there was something that wasn't right. And I think when he pulled me into that classroom and we spoke, it just made me realize that people do care and people do want me in this world. And maybe what my brain was telling me wasn't necessarily all truth. And I think I realised there that my thoughts aren't necessarily facts. And he made me realise that. Um, And to this day, I still speak to him. He still helps me. He still assists me where he can. He still supports me. And I truly would not be alive if it wasn't for him. He really, really did save my life. And I'm so thankful for him.
0: In that conversation, he also used the direct language that is proven to be most helpful, yet is often avoided because of discomfort. Instead of talking around the concern and asking indirectly something like, you're not thinking of doing anything stupid, are you? And honestly, who would answer yes to that question? He asked directly if she was thinking of killing herself.
2: It was so powerful for me because no one ever asked me before. If I had thoughts of suicide, or if I had thoughts of harming myself, or if I had thoughts of taking my own life, and I think the reason that people didn't ask me that question was because they were scared of the answer themselves.
0: And it is a scary question. What do you do if someone says yes? Well, you love on them, and listen to them, and do not judge them. And you call in any help that you need helping them. One option is a hotline, like the new 988 in the U.S., You can call and say, I'm with someone who just told me they're suicidal. I've never had this conversation before and I'm scared. Can you please help me help them? That resource is available 24-7, 365 days a year. So please, do not let not knowing what to say or do stop you from saying or doing something. Chloe is living proof of how life-affirming and life-saving a caring conversation can be. After that one-on-one with her athletics teacher, Chloe's perspective somehow shifted. She was able to not only see her own situation and pain in a different way, but she was able to recognize the larger human condition.
2: Because I remember I sat, I sat down in my school and there was people all around me in my dining hall, And I looked around me and there were so many people who looked almost miserable. And I just remember thinking to myself that there are so many people in this room who are going through something right now that is unimaginable. And I have no idea about it. And the people around me have no idea about it either. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I need to do something to turn this around, not only for myself, but for the people around me who don't have a voice or who are too afraid to use their voice.
0: Chloe's turnaround involved a 220-mile walk across England to raise money for a mental health charity. Just as there are risk factors for suicide, there are also protective factors, and a sense of purpose and value is a powerful one.
2: I think part of the problem was that I didn't really feel like I had purpose before, and then all of a sudden I had a purpose and I had a reason to get up every morning and to do what I needed to do to help other people. And I think for me, it was all about helping just one other person. And hopefully I've done that. Um, But that's where the transition period really started for me. Chloe's
0: transition continued with the realization of her childhood dream and goal. At age 18, she moved to the US to study and play soccer on the scholarship she'd earned.
2: My life now. um, So I moved to America when I was 18. And I think at that point, I was still not, in the best mindset, I kind of came to America searching for the love of life again. And I think I was still looking for the colour in the world again. And I think that move to America was probably the biggest, most powerful and uh, most incredible thing that I probably ever did for myself because I think I met people that just completely changed my way of viewing life and it gave me the opportunity to really understand what I went through, what I felt, um, the journey that I'd been on. And it gave me the opportunity to actually like, have time with myself and self-reflect and train my brain. And yeah, it just gave me all of this time to truly understand who I was.
0: And the person Chloe is wants the person you are to believe in recovery and hope and the possibility of your life changing and improving in ways that you are literally unable to imagine when you're in depression's pit.
2: And now i finished playing, actually. So I'm a coach, and (laughs) I've never loved life as much as I do now. And if you'd asked me when I was 16 years old if I would be where I am right now, I probably would have laughed like I wouldn't have believed it because of the place that I was in. And I think that just shows that there is always hope, even when you think there is none. And even when you think you can't get through the day, all you have to do is get through the day and survive the day. And then you can start again tomorrow.
0: And you're a coach now, which I find just fascinating. So are you tuned in to your players' mental health as well as their physical? Have you ever stepped in and said, hey?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so... I would say that my main role on the on the uh, on the coaching staff right now is to be to be someone who's there for the players mentally and emotionally, and I deliver you know um, I deliver leadership sessions, like kind of sports psychology, and I feel like the players know that if they need something or they need to talk to someone or they're struggling with their mental health, they know that I'm the person to come and speak to and. I think that's a huge thing because, you know, we've lost so many student athletes in the last year or even six months to mental illness and to suicide. And I want to make sure that those players, those girls know that suicide is never the way out and that they always have someone to talk to and they always have someone who can support them through whatever they're going through. That is a beautiful circle. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I never, (laughs) wow, I never actually... I never really realized that, but now you look at it, yeah, it is, it's a circle, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's really lovely. It's
0: like a healing circle. You know, you it are is. giving what you received, and it's inspirational.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing
1: your story. So, Terry, I think such an important takeaway from what Chloe had to say was, how important it is to notice and to pay attention and that just one, as you said, one single caring person can make such a huge difference by, by noticing that. Just so incredibly important. And he did an exceptional job. You know,
0: I went, when she was talking to me, I was like, is this guy trained? Because he didn't just notice. He knew to ask directly. He knew to take mm-hmm. her. You know, he took her into another room, which, you know, is, is not a formula, but it would certainly allow for more intimacy and disclosure and said like, yeah, I'm not gonna let you do this. And he had noticed her change when I said what changed. And it was the way she was dressing and the people she was hanging around with. And Mm -hmm. she wasn't as involved in her sports. And, you know, they were big enough changes that he was like, hey, I think I know what's going on here. And I am not gonna let this happen. And I've also put out a feeler trying to get an interview with the coach, by the way, so that that could be a future episode. But we will link to the warning signs of both being suicidal and of depression, just because the more people who know them, the more of us are going to feel maybe a little more capable of having that conversation.
1: Yes. I think it's, I think it's really important that we, we do, even if we aren't seeing anything that our conscious mind is sort of saying, okay, this is one of those signs. If you have a gut feeling, you know, if if as you're trying to fall asleep at night, you just have this nagging sort of sense of, I wonder if this person's okay. I really think it's okay to trust that. I really think it's okay to go ahead and do that follow up. We don't always know what we know, mm-hmm. but we do know things. <laughs> we we know when something is off or something's different, even if we can't point to the specifics sometimes. I think it's okay to trust our gut sometimes when they say, Something's wrong. Something's off. It makes me want to explore this with this person.
0: Our guts know so much more than our brains do. I have had those thoughts and, and texted people in the middle of the night and said, I'm awake worrying about you. Are you awake? And I've gotten yeses, you know, and it's very interesting. Last mm-hmm. night I had company in town and they brought a dog and I don't have a dog. And we went out to dinner and apparently the dog barked most of the time we were gone. And neighbors heard a dog, which was different, uh, came over and rang the bell to see why the dog was barking. If there was, you know, if this was a lassie, Jimmy fell in the well kind of a situation, if something had happened to me. Mm
1: -hmm. And they
0: called the sheriff Mm -hmm. to do a wellness check on me. And, you know, more... Ringing of the bell and knocking on the door made more parking. But when I pulled into the driveway, there's a sheriff's squad in my driveway and he asked my name and said, Are you okay? Your neighbors are checking on you. And at first I was like, What? You know, like almost leave me alone. And then I thought, (laughs) Well, that's really kind of cool because if, you know, they don't know what I do for a living, but if something bad had happened, even, you know, a slip and a bang my head or whatever, they had a feeling that. You know, things were off enough over here, just the barking of a dog, that they thought they should check. And so this morning I dropped off, you know, card and said, thank you for checking on me. Because if something had been wrong, I would have really appreciated, you know, the aid. Absolutely.
1: You had good neighbors there, Terry. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, you know, Mr. Rogers says, be a good neighbor. Exactly. You don't have to live next to somebody to, you know, to, to be observant like that and notice and just figure something's not right here. Let me check. Let me just check. There's no harm in checking. Mm-hmm. There's no harm mm-hmm. in asking. We just need to to keep keep saying that,
0: right? And that was in a, in Ken's episode when he was the the survivor of an attempt from the Golden Gate Bridge. He said, "Like, what's the downside? What's yeah. the downside of intervention?" Right. So somebody says, "No, I was just out to dinner and the dog was barking," mm-hmm. or "I was asleep and I'm fine, but I appreciate you checking." Or leave me the hell alone. I mean, you might get that. You know, it's not not everybody's going to welcome your intrusive in quotes questions mm-hmm. but on some level you're grateful somebody cared enough to ask
1: right there's obviously a connection there and you matter yeah. enough for them to check and i think that's that's so that's so important it is indeed
0: all right we'll be back next tuesday with another episode thank you for joining us
1: we truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others
0: like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen.